0: Sean Connery is James Bond,
1: agent 007, never say never again. My name's Bond.
0: Oh, you're Mr. Bond. I believe I'm having you in half an
1: hour. Splendid. Your room or mine? Have you Mr. Bond?
0: You're marvellously well equipped
1: Thank you, James So are you Good to see you, Mr. Bond Things have been awfully dull round here I hope we're
0: going to have some gratuitous sex and violence I certainly hope so, too
1: Bond the game is over. Sean Connery is Ian Fleming's James Bond in Never Say Never
0: Again. Hello everybody and welcome to Is It Yours, the movie review program. I'm Paul Svatero and today we are reviewing a James Bond film and more about that in a moment. But for now I'd like to introduce my James Bond co-host once again because we did Goldfinger together, Dave Pescarella. Dave, welcome aboard again.
1: Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, my pleasure. I don't know if that thank you is as uh, enthusiastic as it was for Goldfinger.
1: <laughs> well, I don't think anyone's going to sit back and say you could call this podcast, Is It Never Say Never Again?
0: Yeah, that's fair, fair enough. Yeah, you know, there's a couple of things about this. Is, uh, one is, part of my mission statement, in my mind, is not necessarily just to pick the old-time classics. Uh, And when I ask people, oh, you know, what are you interested in going on and talking about, usually they're going to give something that, at least in their mind, they consider to be one of their favorite movies. So every once in a while I have to, or I want to sprinkle in some that are, you know, a little different from that. And knowing, you know, from our talks how big of a James Bond fan you are, I figured I'd shoot for this one. Uh, Very, very confident that it's not going to be a Jaws from either of us. And we'll we'll go we'll go into that further towards the end of the show, but this one goes to the conversation I've had, and I think mostly I've had it with Scott, uh, and we've talked about guilty pleasures, and Scott kind of when we discussed it, Scott kind of just dismissed that, saying I'm not going to feel guilty about anything I like, too you know too bad. <laughs> And I understand the logic there, and I totally agree with that. I don't feel guilty for it. It's just a different definition as far as I'm concerned. When I say guilty pleasures, I'm not saying, oh, I feel bad that I like this. What I'm saying is it's either something I know the general public really doesn't like, but I like anyway, or something that I can see its flaws and I know it's bad, and I like it anyway. (laughs) And this one kind of falls into that to some extent. Again, I'm not going to try and present it as a as a classic in any shape or means. Uh, But I do, for whatever reason, kind of enjoy watching this one. And I know I forced you to sit down and watch it, so I'm going to jump right in. Let's let's talk about what, what we're reviewing again. It's the 1983 Sean Connery return to James Bond in Never Say Never Again. And this was effectively a remake of Thunderball, and it was... Subject to a lot of litigation because uh, Kevin McClory, I I don't even know all the fine details of it, but he claimed the rights to the story, and it was tied up in litigation for quite some time, uh, which prevented the, uh, the prime bomb makers from using Spectre or Blofeld because he eventually won the rights to that story which contained those characters. Now, I don't know, like I said, the fine details, why, why he didn't win the rights to just James Bond. but uh, and, and that the, fight was, was going back
1: years before this.
0: Oh, I think it was going on from, well, the last time we saw Blofeld in a movie where he was called Blofeld, before this, was in
1: Diamonds Are Forever. And that was, I think that was 1971. Right. And then they had that little shtick in For Your Eyes Only. yeah but they never called right. that, and the,
0: and the litigation was already underway by then. I'm pretty sure right after Diamonds Are Forever is when the litigation started, and it was effectively a cease and desist, and right. they were not able to use Spectre or Blofeld anymore. Right. And of late now, they've regained those rights because of the movie, you know, as demonstrated in the movie Spectre, but that's an awful long time. We got to, I guess that was 2016 when that came out. Uh, So we went from 1971 to 2016 with those rights being cloudy. But whatever the case may be, McClory was allowed to make this movie. And I remember when this came out in 1983. It was the same year that they came out with Octopussy, which did outperform this at the box office. Um, And I remember reading reviews of it and saying, (laughs) effectively, the story is so confusing uh, or so convoluted they could just remake this movie over and over and over again, putting different titles on it, and, you know, they could have a whole series of movies of the same thing, and just keep having Sean Connery come back to play the same part. Uh, and I just, I found that fascinating at the time. <laughs> and, uh, but I did, I saw it in the movies, I kind of liked it, but then I, you know, again, it's I, I do understand it's a guilty pleasure. And this one I go more with, I see the flaws, I know white people don't like it, but I kind of like it anyway. Uh, what, what's your experience with this thing? When did you first see it? And you know, what did, what did you?
1: Th- My story with this film is, I never saw it in the theater. My father had taken a business trip to Japan, and he sent me a postcard saying, "Oh, when I get back, you know, we'll go see Never Say Never Again," because he was a big James Bond fan too, and uh, our favorite Bond. <laughs> Not that I don't like any of the others, I like, I love them all, but Sean Connery was my favorite. Needless to say, he came back, one thing led to another, we never went to see it, so I had to wait for uh, VHS to see it. And I remember seeing it once, I don't think I was very impressed with it, and then until you asked me to cover this, I had never seen it again. So we're talking what? The 90s, the 25 years?
0: Uh,
1: 30. 30 30 almost. Time flies. So I sat down with my wife and watched it because I have all of them on DVD except for this one because I bought those box sets. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And luckily I got it from Amazon. Uh, Amazon. It was like 12 bucks. He's making you spend money for this. Please, you owe me for this one. (laughs) 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 <laughs> All right, uh, that is a debt I will repay at some point. Sat down and I watched this with my wife, and I understood and, and why I never. I understood why I never watched this again. <laughs> so this would not fall in the guilty pleasure category. Not, not for me. And then I sat down by myself last night and watched it again, and it still didn't get any better. Okay, I might as well give the plot
0: at this point. And just interestingly, when I punched this up on Wikipedia. Uh, the top, you know, where they have a little disclaimer kind of thing. This article is about the film. For so the song by the BJ, Bee Gees, Never Say Never Again. You know, and it's got the link to click on. Uh, I'm curious to hear the song, Never Say Never Again by the Bee Gees. Is that,
1: is that the song they used in the movie?
0: No, I, I don't think so. Okay. If it is, it's, it's a, a, a version of it that they didn't use in the movies because they, they did not sing that version. I forget what the uh, singer's name is. She's somebody who was not. The plot of the movie goes something like this. If the MI6 agent James Bond, 007, fails a training scenario, the superior, M, orders Bond to a health clinic outside London to get back into shape. While there, Bond witnesses a mysterious nurse named Fatima Blush, giving a sadomasochistic eating to a patient in a nearby room. The man's face is bandaged, and after Blush finishes her beating, Bond sees the patient using a machine which scans his arm. Bond is seen by Blush, who sends an assassin to kill him in the clinic chamber, but Bond manages to defeat the assassin. Blush and her charge, a United States Air Force pilot named Jack Mitachi, are operatives of Spectre, a criminal organization run by Ernst Stavaro Wolfgang. Mitachi has undergone an operation on his right arm to make it match the retinal pattern of the U.S. president. He uses to circumvent its iris recognition security at the fictitious RAF station Swabu, an American military base in England. While doing so, he replaces the dummy warheads of two cruise missiles with live nuclear warheads. Spectre then steals the warheads, intending to extort billions of dollars from NATO governments. Lush murders Pitachi to cover Spectre's tracks. Under orders from the Prime Minister, M reluctantly reactivates the 07. Bond is assigned the task of tracking down Melissa Weapons. He meets Domino Patache, the pilot's sister, and her wealthy lover, Maximilian Largo, the Spectre agent. Bond follows Largo on and head- head his yacht to the Bahamas, where he spars with Russian and Largo. Bond is informed by Na- Nigel forces on the British Consulate that Largo's yacht is now headed for Nice, France. There, Bond joins fr- forces with his French contact, Nicole, and his CIA counterpart, Felix Leiter. Bond goes to a healthy and beauty center where he poses as an employee and, while viewing Domino a massage, is informed by her that Lago is hosting an event at a casino that evening. At the charity event, Lago and Bond play a 3D video game called Domination. The loser of each turn receives a series of electric shocks at increasing intensity or pays a corresponding cash bet. Bond ultimately wins. While dancing with Domino, Bond informs her that her brother has been killed on Margo's orders. Bond returns to his Via to find Nicole dead, drowned in a waterbed by Blush. After an aviator chase on his motorbike, Blush captures Bond. She admits that she is impressed with him and forces Bond to declare in writing that she is his number one sexual partner. Bond distracts her with promises, then uses his Q Branch issued fountain pen to shoot Lush with an explosive dart. Bond and Leiter attempt to board Largo's motor yacht, a flying saucer, in search of missing nuclear warheads. Bond finds Domino. He attempts to make Largo jealous by kissing Domino in front of a two-way mirror. Largo becomes enraged, traps Bond, and takes him and Domino to Palmyra, Largo's base of operations in North Africa. Largo coldly punishes Domino for her betrayal by selling her to some passing Arabs. Bond subsequently escapes and rescues her. Domino and Bond reunite with Lighter on a United States Navy submarine and track Largo to a location known as the Tears of Allah, below a desert oasis on the Ethiopian coast. Bond and Lighter infiltrate the underground facility, and a gun battle erupts between Lighter's team and Largo's men in the temple. In the confusion, Largo makes a getaway with one of the warheads. Bond catches and fights Largo underwater. Just as Logo tries to detonate the last bomb, he is killed by Domino, taking revenge for her brother's death. Bond returns to the Bahamas with Domino, vowing never to go back to his old habits. Hmm. That's our story. So now the first thing I'm going to ask is, what's your level of familiarity with
1: Thunderbolt? Oh, I'm very familiar with the the original. I like that move. (laughs) I like that one. Okay. (laughs) I... I almost think we should have compared the two,
0: to be honest. Well, you know what? We're going backwards here, but I think at some point in the not-too-distant future, we should cover Thunderball, and then we'll do the side-by-side a little bit during that one. So right now, I think it's best just to kind of give the thumbnail of your comparison. Okay. What do you think?
1: Um... I mean, if you've seen the original, this... Does sort of follow you know the same plot line, which i guess they were limited to doing
0: mm-hmm. Oh, yeah that's, they were under very strict uh legal restrictions to stay within the storyline that they had
1: and, and 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 they they did that i mean they they did change some of the minor the uh, set pieces and that kind of thing, and the locations and some of the technology. But yeah, I mean, uh, they followed it to some ex- to some extent, I guess. Mm. See, I, th- I think the biggest
0: change thematically is acknowledging in this that Bond is now older, that the 007... Uh, group, has, or the double-O group rather, has fallen out of favor with the uh, the management that they've become a little bit more corporate. Hey, we, we must eliminate all free radicals. You know well,
1: you, you know yeah. what the thing with that was? To, it seemed like it was a product of its times. Do
0: you mm-hmm. know what I
1: mean? Like, there was a... And these are some of the things I didn't like. I didn't like the attitude that they made M like a jerk. Like it was almost that like contempt for authority. And, and yet I've seen that
0: in subsequent films, more so than prior, where M has lost some confidence in, in the double-O uh, or lost confidence in Bond. I, I think we saw that more in the Brosnan era.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: You know, with Judy Dench, you know, having a, a love-hate relationship with Bond.
1: But I think Judy Dench was still competent.
0: Oh, absolutely. This guy I mean. seemed like an idiot. And I'm just, you know, I and mean, I hate to go too far afield with other Bond movies. Uh, another one that I'm going to put on the guilty pleasure, but in a slightly different way, uh, and I'm not going to talk too much about why I think that way yet, because I do think we'll cover it eventually. Which one? It's I, I can... die, die Another Day. Huh. And in that, they effectively have uh, Judi Dench supporting Bond for the most part. While uh, Michael Madsen, who's her American counterpart, you know, with with an absolute lack of respect for Bond,
1: right? right. So I mean,
0: but they do play with that theme somewhat in uh, in these movies. I think, uh, going forward, you know, where where M doesn't necessarily think that the Double O methods carry over to today,
1: right? And I I could see that, but I can't I can't tolerate the Incompetence, because that's what it seemed more like to me. Well, going right right to
0: the opening sequence, uh, which I didn't think was a bad action sequence. You know, his test, which turns out to be a test, but you don't know when you're initially watching it. Ultimately, when he failed in that test, it had nothing to do with his physical conditioning. It had to do with his underestimating the extent to which uh, a kidnapped uh, girl may have had uh, Stockholm Syndrome. Right. And, and then because of that, he gets sent to a, uh, to, you know, to a health spa. So, you know, th- there's really no logic there that follows through, because his failure had nothing to do with his condition. Right. Uh, and then, you know, there's a certain amount of convenience. He gets to this health spa, and it just happens to be where uh, Fatima Blush is torturing uh, Jack Pataccio.
1: You mean the Joker?
0: The Joker, or... Uh, what else would he be? Uh, he was Chuck Cunningham. Uh, that was, was Chuck
1: Cunningham.
0: There were two different Chuck Cunninghams. He was one of them. Huh? I didn't realize that. Uh, he was also in uh, Superman Three.
1: Yes, he was the uh, the jerky boyfriend of Lana Lang. Mm-hmm. Wow. No, I was thinking Fatima was more like the Joker, completely nuts
0: okay I, th- I was thinking that he may have done like the voice of the joker and something when you said that that's I'm sure a, a misstep by me though <laughs> but uh yeah that's uh it, she she was so over the top but I think and here's here's my very lame excuse for her uh, I think she's a bad actress uh, and I think by letting her be over the top she kind of masked some of her inability to actually show emotion
1: I'll buy that she was terrible I'm re-
0: but, and yet, I found her amusing, and I think it's because they made her go over the top instead of trying to downplay it. slightly. you didn't want her as the silent assassin, a la job. You right. needed her to be, you know, you know, she's laughing, she's trying to be sexy, she's, you know, just very outspoken. And and I think that played better than if they had tried to do her a different way. And like I said, in, in her own way, I found her appealing in this character because of that. Right. I don't despite the fact that you clearly don't agree with her point, pointing her appealing in any way.
1: <laughs> yeah, she doesn't float my boat at all. But uh, uh,
0: It's not that I wanted to meet her personally, I just found her entertaining. I uh,
1: I don't want to compare any, you know, I'm not going to compare the two movies really, but the character that was similar to her in the original... hmm she did it much better because I think she was crazy too, to some extent. Yeah, well, I think you know overall.
0: I think when we do get to comparison, we're going to find a lot of things in the original that are superior to this one. And speaking of which, we're going to go to one of my least favorite casting choices in this is uh, Klaus Marie Brandauer as uh, Largo. Uh, I, I thought, quite frankly, I thought he was terrible. Uh, I think his, his performance, he's supposed to be shown as like a smoldering, you know, his mind is always working, but he's always angry underneath this, you know, where he, he tries to come off as charming, but he's always angry. And he's written that way. But performance-wise, I just didn't, you know, I, I didn't buy it from him at all.
1: Well, he reminded me of a ball.
0: Yeah, I didn't find him to be physically threatening. Uh, and the, you know, when he, when he would let the flashes out of, of Psycho, uh, I didn't find it believable, but then I slit your throat. <laughs> you know, it's it just it just didn't play well for me as far as he went. But he was he was off to the side and peripheral enough that that didn't really disturb my ability to enjoy this. Right. But he he was no question about it my least favorite cast person, and and to a large extent, Kim Basinger in this is just eye candy. Yes, she she isn't given anything really to do. Even even when she finds out that her brother's dead, she doesn't really emote very well.
1: Well, her, her gift to the picture was wearing that see through outfit.
0: Yeah, at the end of the movie. Yes,
1: that's about it. Yeah, speaking of um, uh scenes in the movie, when he's in the uh, institution, institution, the assassin who comes after him. I don't I don't even know what his name was.
0: I don't think they gave him a name.
1: Okay. Other than the funny part where he kills him at the end, it seemed to me he was a combination of Jaws and Oddjob. Yes, no question about it. That's that's exactly what I thought.
0: He was you know, pretty much physically unbeatable by Bond. Right. Until he you know, until the funny bit at the end. Which I did find amusing. That was that was fun. I kind of liked, you know, Bond... I, and I, I always have. You know, with our job, I liked it. With yours, I liked it. I like Bond facing the foe that he cannot physically defeat. Right, and having to find a way to, to win. Now, in this, he didn't really find a way. He lucked into a way.
1: Well, you, I mean, we could do spoilers in this, right? Yeah, absolutely. People are not going to go and <coughs> run out buy this movie based on this review. <laughs> oh, Please. Unless you're into sadomasochism, then you might. Uh, again, guilty pleasure. Go ahead. <laughs> they killed this guy by slamming him into a bunch of glass, getting stuck in his back, right? Yes. How much g- glass did Bond go crashing through right before that?
0: Oh yeah. Oh, that—that that, to me, that jumped out at me. It's like every time Bond falls on something, there's... is you know, 80 bottles underneath him, and he doesn't get to have a scratch on him. This guy goes s- smashing into a cabinet, and, and a glass penetrates his back far enough to kill him. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I agree. It's a little silly when you think about that. And just to give the punchline, because people probably either have seen this already, or are not going to run out to see it based on our review, I would think. Uh, the reason he goes into this cabinet and gets punctured by the glass is because Bond picks up a beaker and throws its contents into his face, and it turns out, because he's in the health club, health uh, spa, that it's Bond's urine sample that he threw in his face. Right. So so he, he did effectively physically kill him on his own.
1: I mean, Bond does have a, a few good one-liners in this, as in every Bond movie. Yeah. Well, I liked that fight scene. I liked him in the health spa.
0: Right. You know, the, you know, the, the nurse who takes a liking to him brings him some you know some food that's slightly more tasty than what they're serving and he just dismisses that because it's you know nothing and <laughs> nothing the average person would, would want to eat. And he opens up a, uh, a suitcase full of like caviar and
1: you know, vodka. yeah. Uh, I liked when he he's going through the initial physical with the nurse and she's like on the other side of the room and she's got the beaker says, could you fill this up with a urine sample? He goes from here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, one
0: of the things I have to say I didn't really care for is I did think we saw a somewhat ineffective bond of this uh, When he defeated that assassin, it was based on uh, pure luck. Really? Mm-hmm. Uh, when he avoid, avoided Fatima's death trap in his room, it's just because he went to a different room. Not because he suspected anything was wrong there. You know, there's there's a lot of scenes here where, where he just kind of lucks into victory as opposed to outthinking his opponents.
1: Absolutely.
0: So it it is you know. Again, you know, when M sent him to the health clinic, I think he just had the wrong uh, wrong idea. Again, it wasn't Bond's physical condition that prevented him from being effective. It was the fact that he was probably a step a uh, 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 slightly slow on the uptake because probably he was out of practice uh, and and clues that he probably should have seen or methods of doing things that he should have been aware of escaped him in this movie you know when, when he gets that that motorbike uh, you know they, they kind of foreshadow that early on oh i'm going to send you this if i get it working then they sent it to him when he used it uh, you know, he gets, he gets captured on it. It's not like, it, you know, he didn't really use it to escape or anything. So, right. you know, it's not the most effective Bond. So I, I did, you know, I have to criticize that as well. And there's a lot, like I said, I'm going to have more criticisms of this movie than I am favorable things. But for whatever reason, I still fall on the side of enjoying it. Uh, I did like Bernie Casey as Felix Leiter. No,
1: he was go- he was very good. I liked him as well.
0: I know, you know, on Is it Joes, not on Is it jo- excuse me, on Listen to the Prophets, we had an episode of DS9 that he got get starred on, and we were highly critical of his acting in that movie. And I commented then that I've seen him in other movies that I've liked him in, and this is one
1: of them. Now, he, he was one of the high points in this picture.
0: And I think, I think he was a good choice because he, at least I, you know, and I never looked this up, but I would think age-wise he was probably contemporary to Sean Connery at that point.
1: How old Maybe. do you think Sean Connery was in this picture? He was 52. Hmm.
0: So, and I'm going to punch up Bernie Casey right now. He was born in 1939, so he would have been... Actually, he would have been not quite 50. Right? 49, So he would have been like 44, 43. He was a little younger. He he seemed to be contemporary to me. I guess he was probably contemporary to the age they wanted you to think Bond was. They wanted you to think Bond was older, but I don't think they wanted you to think he was in his 50s.
1: Well, he definitely came across as older.
0: Yes. He he was 52 when they filmed it, And, and they do mention that he's aging, but I'm thinking they want you to think he's in his 40s you know, that, that the prime years for a, a super spy would be in your 30s and that he's in his 40s, so he's, like, just beyond those years. But, I don't, you know, they never really give you any point of reference to to guess at what his age might be. And and for, you know, somebody in his 50s who's supposed to be, you know, a little out of shape or whatever, they, they have an awful lot of shots of him with no shirt on.
1: Oh, physically he looks fine. <laughs> you know, he doesn't look out of shape. But it's just, you you hit that age, you start to slow down. Believe me, I know. <laughs> Probably M had a good point wanting to push him out. <laughs>
0: Let's see, are there any other actors in this that we haven't talked about? We haven't talked about Max von Sydow, who's who's, uh, I guess, number one inspector. He has kind of a forgettable role. I don't think they utilized him as much. I think their thought process was if they did well in this movie and were able to kind of sequelize it somehow, that they would use him more in the next movie. Right. Right. But he, he was more or less the Blofeld character. In fact, I think he may have been technically Blofeld, but I don't think they ever named him as such.
1: You know what I kept thinking of when they first... Um, when Fatima first goes to Spectre's headquarters, where she goes through that bank vault and then down with the bars across the thing, where they scan her and she comes in. hmm I would have liked to have seen her gotten a phone booth and drop through the floor.
0: <laughs> and then you had to get smart music. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly.
0: I think that would have made it better. <laughs> I mean, think they, they could have camped it up a little if they, you know, and, and maybe it might have improved it by some people's reckoning, I don't know. Uh, if they knew they were going to do a one-and-done, maybe they would have. Uh, I'm just looking at the Wikipedia page, and they do have... Uh, outside out listed as Ernst or Blofeld.
1: Do you remember, did they call him Blofeld in the picture? I
0: don't remember them ever saying the name, but they may have. I, I wasn't specifically looking for that, so it's possible.
1: Because you almost think they'd want to do that to stick a finger in the other guy's eye? Mm-hmm. I, and, but then I would think you would even go closer to the original
0: uh, conception of him and, and get a bald guy Possibly even with the scars on his face, like Donald Pleasance in uh, You Only Live Twice. Yep. yep. Which is my personal favorite appearance with Blofeld.
1: Oh, Donald Pleasance was the best in that character.
0: Yeah, and my, my least favorite, as far as just being Blofeld, my least favorite was, uh, was what's his name? Uh, Diamonds off That's Yeah. Let's say it. It something, I can't remember what his name was.
1: Yeah, because he didn't match the profile.
0: He just didn't look the part. He didn't. Although I did enjoy the way he was played in the movie, I enjoyed like the way he was written into it with the uh, uh, you know the the, the the doppelgangers and all. Charles Gray, who played it in that movie, I just th- I just thought he was miscast in the role.
1: Yeah, no, especially
0: agree. especially after having been on the other side of the uh, battle in uh, You will Live Twice. Yeah. So back to this fine example of filmmaking here uh what did you think of the music the soundtrack the score
1: it's funny you should ask me that when the movie and that's why i asked <laughs> when the, when the movie opened up and he's on that mission and the the music is playing in the background all i kept thinking of was the soundtrack to a porno movie <laughs>
0: From that ear. Oh, I was having a sip of my drink when you said that. Why well, did you do that? Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know what? I, I never that thought never crossed my mind, but I could see it. <laughs> <laughs> Up until now, I kind of liked the score. <laughs> <laughs> I ruined, I ruined it for you. you have ruined it? Well, it's not like I listened to it in the car or anything. But uh, I, you know, when I saw the movie, I kind of liked it. I like the, I, 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 I find the theme song. And anybody interested in hearing thoughts about the theme songs. We did a, an episode of Long Play going over every James Bond uh, theme song, which is one of my uh, one of my favorite things that we've done. So I would say you know look for that on the Two True Freaks uh, feed. It is available, but uh, I kind of liked the theme song. I thought it was catchy, jazzy, and I, I kind of liked that sound. Uh, and I thought the score had callbacks to that throughout, and it would be you know. Increasing and waning in, in intensity, depending on what they were doing in the scene. Uh, but I, I thought it was, you know, I thought it was fine. And I thought when they did ramp it up, it, it did have an action feel to it. Now I'm going to have a totally different thought henceforth. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Mr. Pasquarello.
1: I've ruined it. I've ruined the whole thing. Pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> I
0: don't. Want, I don't want to overreact, but yeah. <laughs> uh. <clears throat>
1: Now I have some nitpicks too. Sure, go ahead. From the be- First of all, I don't buy the whole plot with, uh, the switching of the missiles, where they just had to scan. First of all, I don't think the president scans his eye even today to do this. And I understand for the purpose of the movie, you know, they throw technology in that they- we really don't have. I don't buy I that. Think that's always been James Bond's MO, by the way. And I guess you have to just accept that. But I can't believe that they would switch dummy warheads with a nuclear device and nobody would question anything. It almost seemed like it was all computerized. That, you know, yes, pretty much. He, he scanned his uh, and there's nobody overlooking any of this. So, I kind of... I like the the idea in the well never mind. I, do I just you prefer
0: the Superman the movie way of hijacking missiles. Almost, yeah. I
1: could <laughs> I could see that better.
0: Uh, and I'm, and I'm not saying that facetiously that I don't think that was better done. Uh, in, in many ways I do think that was better
1: done. Well, when the missiles are flying over England and over the ocean, didn't that remind you of Superman?
0: Yes, absolutely. That's and that's why I bring it up. It did, uh, and and it was you know they had a whole caravan of uh, troops transporting them. It wasn't like a low level security thing. You know, they had to figure out a way to get by a much more complicated uh, it's know, uh,
1: security it's dirty. system. It's the swapping of a dummy with a real nuke, and nobody notices anything. That that bugged me. And the, and the murder of uh, Domino's brother. Jack the Touch. It was, I don't know, it was just kind of stupid. If she could have blown up the car by pushing a remote detonator, why bother throwing the snake in and making him crash? That, that, well,
0: uh, you know, the way I took that was, that's just a sign of how sick she was. I guess. Because I, I think she was supposed to be totally unbalanced. That's, so. they, that's what they were demonstrating there at least that's how I read that you know she she was uh, a sadist
1: oh clearly yeah
0: I guess you're right so she, she wanted to see him suffer before uh, before letting him go
1: and he was a doofy looking character as well I find it hard to believe that he was Kim Basinger's brother well, well you know the
0: Genetics aren't always, <laughs> they don't always duplicate each other. But uh, I did see him as somebody, you know, I, what I saw as more unbelievable as far as his role was that he would reach a level in the military where he would have enough, you know, enough security clearance to, uh, you know, to be
1: useful to him. Right, he was rather weak-minded.
0: Yeah. I, I thought, you know, physically and mentally, he was so,
1: I mean, she beat the crap out of him.
0: So, I, I, Which, you know, I thought that aspect of it. Again, you know, another person was probably miscast a little bit.
1: And, you know, another trope of the Bond movies that I feel is, you know, it's the exotic locations and the exotic cars. And I just felt that you didn't have the car aspect, pretty much.
0: And, well, and frankly, the Bahamas is a little pedestrian. It's not quite as exotic as I would hope for. Right, right. You know, and, and I've been to the Bahamas twice. It's not like I'm, you know, down on it or whatever. But it, to me, it, it, and maybe that's why I'm a little thinking it's not exotic enough, because it's some place I've been. <laughs> so it's like, well, if I've been there, what's a the big deal? <laughs> uh, on the other hand, in other movies where they go to Jamaica, which I've also been to, uh, I, I kind of like that. But I just find Jamaica to be a more exotic locale just because of when you start adding in some of the cultural things and everything. It's just it's a little more mysterious to me. Right. you know uh, Jamaica and Haiti, you know, you start getting voodoo and stuff like that, and music, and I, I don't know, for some reason I find those to be a little bit more exotic. But the Bahamas seems to me, and again, my perception may not be accurate on this, but the Bahamas seem to me to be more of a touristy place. So for that reason, I, you know, I, I think it's more exciting to have some place that's not quite so touristy.
1: Right. But like I was saying... I felt the automobiles used were not of bond quality. They needed
0: they needed to use they needed to to make that motorcycle more exciting.
1: Well when he arrives at the casino not the casino, the charity gambling event. He's like in a regular beat up sedan, as opposed to, you know, a Porsche or a BMW or whatever. You know, that's not a car James Bond rides around in. Hmm. Corgi, Corgi isn't going out of their way to make that. Right, exactly. It was probably a Ford Cortina is what it looked like. Yeah, well, again, a little pedestrian and not exotic enough. Mm-hmm.
0: So some of the choices they made, I agree with you totally that they definitely uh, dumbed it down a little or cheapened it a little. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the direction. Now, this was directed by Urban Kirshner who's, uh, on, his, on his resume, is probably one of the favorite movies of virtually everybody who's listening to this, because he directed The Empire Strikes Back. But if you cross that off his resume, it's not really all that impressive. I don't know if you've looked into him at all.
1: No. What else did he do?
0: He, he was actually a, uh, I, I believe, at least my understanding of it, is he was one of George Lucas's teachers of and that's why he, uh, Lucas went to him for uh, The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, but if you look at his filmography, and I'm just going to try and hit on things that I recognize. looks like he did a fair number of TV things, like episodes of Ben Casey. Uh, and eventually he went on to movies and did, uh, let's see, I'm just looking for things that, I, that I'm at least familiar with in name. A movie called Loving, a movie called Spies, which I... Seems seemed to because it's S asterisk P asterisk Y asterisk S. So my, my thought on that was that it was always a, an attempt to kind of create a spy movie that was similar to MASH. Hmm. But I've never seen it, so I can't even say if that's what it is or not. Uh, Return of the Man Called Horse, I've heard of. I saw it. Radon and Tebby, which was a television film, and I think that was pretty highly uh, thought of. Uh, the Eyes of Laura Mars, which was a Faye Dunaway movie. I remember hearing of it. I've never seen it. And the next movie after that was The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, since then, he directed Never Say Never Again. Uh, a couple other things. Then there's RoboCop 2, which is also not very well thought of. No. And then there's a couple other things. He apparently appeared in some things as an actor. He played a part in The Last Temptation of Christ. Uh, but, you know, n- not... Not a stellar uh, filmography. Uh, if you cut the Empire Strikes Back off the, off the list, he, he doesn't have a hell of a lot. Hmm. And apparently he was hesitant to take Empire Strikes Back, from what I've heard.
1: Wow. That's wasn't interesting. was really
0: the type of movie that he, uh, he would go for. But he ended up doing it, and uh, obviously history was made then. Uh this was an interesting follow-up for him, though.
1: Shoot. Interesting. What did you think of Q? Uh,
0: I like that they changed him a little bit. You know, I didn't want to go... You know, to me, Desmond Llewellyn is the quintessential Q.
1: Right. Uh,
0: and when, when he stopped filming, uh, they went to John Cleese, and I think part of the reason was we don't want somebody who's going to be an absolute duplicate of him, and I think the same thought process went to choosing uh, whichever actor. <coughs> was here. I'm not even sure what his name is, uh, and I, I thought he was okay. You know, he did have one of those lines. You know, I do hope we're going to have a what's it? A lot of gratuitous sex and violence. Yeah, so he had a good line in there. Uh, I so I, th- I thought he was fine in the part he played, but I thought you know he could have uh, he could have been written better in that he could have come up with some better gadgets.
1: Yeah. I mean pretty much what was it? The pen and the bike? Yeah. Oh, and the la- cool. the laser watch.
0: Oh yeah, and that's how he escapes, too. So they all come into play. Which they all have to come into play, I mean, that's that's a Bond staple. But it you know, it could have been just a little more exciting. Uh, what'd you think of uh what's his name? Uh like oh, uh Black Adder. Uh Rowan Atkinson. What'd you think of Rowan Atkinson as uh, Nigel
1: Smallface or whatever his name? Uh, I didn't care for him. He reminded me of uh, a wacky version of Mr. Bean. Yeah. Well, I was unfamiliar with him at this point. I did not... I, had, I guess this is the
0: first thing I ever saw him in. It was certainly the first thing I ever took note of him in. And uh, you know, I, I just remember, you know, Mr. Bond, Mr. Bond, you know, running around. And, you know, he was there for comic relief. And uh, he is a brilliantly funny actor. If you've seen him in Blackadder... I think that show is, is just off the charts funny. Hmm. Uh, but you know, he, his, his talents weren't put to great use in this.
1: No. You know, it's a fine line between being funny and just being stupid. You yeah, know... Uh, what he was in this. Right. When he first meets Bond and he's leaving and Bond says, make use of the uh, environment or something like that, and you see him hiding behind the poles as he's leaving... It was just Delpy.
0: Yeah, well, that's the whole thing. And he yells at him, and he's, "I didn't want to spoil your cover." Oh, so you yelled my name out over, you know, that kind of thing.
1: What did you think of uh, the battle at the end with the Navy SEALs? Well, that's that's one of the things that I,
0: you know, where I go to the comparison to Thunderball. Uh, The scene in Thunderball. Again, we don't want to get too much into the comparison. But it's, in, in Thunderbolt, that's my, one of my biggest criticisms is that scene seems seems to be interminably long. And part of the reason is that the score just repeats the same notes, the same beats, over and over and over again. It just makes that scene seem so long. Right. Uh, so this, to me, actually did a little better in comparison because they, they moved it along a little bit more swiftly and reached their resolution... So that it didn't seem to just go on and lose my interest. So for that reason, I thought the battle scene was an improvement over what we had in the past. Right, and it's, it may be the only area where I could say this is better than Thunderbolt.
1: Right, absolutely.
0: I don't, I don't know if you agree with that. I, uh, you know, I don't know if that's a common thought process, <laughs> but that was, that was
1: my take on it. No, I agree. I think the the scene in Thunderball was much too long. This kind of also reminded me a bit, I, you know, I understand it's different surroundings, but it reminded me of uh, the battle on the freighter and the spy who loved me, to some extent, for yeah. some reason. No, I can see that. That, that doesn't seem uh,
0: seem unfair. But, it, you know, it was a means to an end, kind of, and they got there and they did what they had to do, and it was almost like the obligatory battle scene. Right. There's also a little bit of that in you know you, you only live twice when they yes. uh, raid when they raid the volcano yeah so you know it it was a little bit of a Bond staple at the point at that point I guess
1: though the set reminded me of, of uh, Indiana Jones
0: what's uh, I'm trying to think did I see something about what uh, what what places they filmed in I can't remember exactly obviously they did do the Bahamas. And, and places in England, but I don't remember. I don't I don't know if there's an overlap with Indiana Jones. There may be. Yeah, I think at that time, especially with... At that point, Indiana Jones, or... Excuse me, let's do this correctly. At that point, Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, was only out for two years, so it would have been probably very fashionable to film in the same places.
1: right?
0: Or certainly, if not to film in the same places, to have a similar look. And with Urban Kirshner's relationship with... Uh, George Lucas. I wouldn't be surprised at all.
1: Well, it cl- that, what clinched it for me with that was when Bond uh, climbs to the top of the statue and he's pushing the head off. Mm-hmm. Because, oh, yeah. Right, it reminded me of that scene in Raiders of the Lost Stock. Interesting. I didn't, that hadn't occurred to me, but I definitely see what you're talking about there. So, this
0: movie was... Well, did you look at the budget in this?
1: No, I didn't look at all. Any guesses? I couldn't even guess. I, I have okay. no idea.
0: I thought about it beforehand, and I thought, okay, so first of all, we're talking $1983. Uh, and I thought some of the special effects were done on the cheap here. I figured the biggest expenditure was probably to get Sean Connery to come back, and he probably cost him, um, I was, and this is what, what I was thinking before I looked it up, uh, I was thinking he probably cost him somewhere in the range of about $10 million to get him back. Wow. But I thought the rest of the movie was probably on the cheap, and I figured maybe $15 million for the whole rest of the movie, and I went at $25 million. Uh, I did sell it a little short because the budget was actually $36 million. Hmm. So I was off on that. I hadn't really considered what the box office was. I knew that Octopussy made more money, uh, but the box office on it was $160 million. So that's saying to me that it was a pretty big hit. Uh, that's I guess that's the overall box office. I don't know domestic versus uh, overseas, but I think at that time. In fact, let me let me go to it on uh, Box Office Mojo. Maybe they break it down. Okay, domestic opening weekend ten million total gross. Okay, okay, domestic gross is fifty-five million. So that means. They did uh, about over $100 million overseas. And I know overseas doesn't give them the same money back that domestic does. There's, I guess, taxes and things involved. Uh, but I would say still it's got to be considered a financial hit at $160 million.
1: So how come you think they didn't make another one?
0: Well, I think it was a financial hit. I do not think it was a critical hit. And I think this is one of those movies, and we've seen it, I think we've seen it more of late than we had in the past, but I think this is one where, uh I'm just, actually, hold on, I'm going to go back, I'm going to backstep a little bit here, because on Wikipedia they have contemporary reviews. Never Say Never Again was broadly welcomed and praised by the critics. Uh I mean, according according to Wikipedia, people pretty much liked it. (laughs) The critic for The Globe and Mail, J. Scott, also praised the film, saying Never Say Never Again may be the only installment of the long-running series that has been helmed by a first-rate director. According to Scott, the director with high-quality supporting cast resulted in the classiest of all of the Bonds. Roger Ebert gave the film three and a half out of four stars and wrote that Never Say Never Again, while consisting of a basic Bond plot, is different from other Bond films. For one thing... There's more of a human element in the movie, and it comes from Klaus-Marie van Brantel. What? Ebert went on to add, there was never a Beatles reunion, but here, by God, is Sean Connery as Sir James Bond. Good work, 007. Interesting.
1: Were they facing the right way in the theater when they watched (laughs) this? I'm just curious.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's it's very interesting to see that. You know, I, I... I remember, again, I remember reading a review where they talked about how they could just kind of redo this over and over again. But I don't remember them being effusive in their praise. I don't remember them being over the top in their criticism either. I think that came later. And that's what I was going to say is that, you know, of late we've seen that a lot more, especially with the internet mob mentality, where a movie will come out initially to somewhat good reviews, you know, not necessarily over the top, but decent and then over time, everybody will decide how terrible it is. Uh, I, I thought that was the case for uh, X-Men The Last Stand. I thought when it first came out, people were like, yeah, it's not bad. It's okay. And then, uh, you know, they weren't saying it was a classic, but they were saying it was okay. And then over time, it got into, you know, it's the worst X-Men movie, worst superhero movie. It was horrible. So I, I do think there's, there's a tendency for things to polarize over time. And I think this movie might be a victim of that as well. Again, not to try and argue in any way, shape, or form that this is a good movie, but I don't think it's as bad as the criticism winds up for it. And you and I may debate that a little bit in a couple of minutes when we get to our uh, Jaws ratings.
1: Yeah, I just... I find that review hard to accept. I could understand someone saying, it was a good film, whatever, but this was the best thing they ever did? Yes,
0: that's pretty shocking. So... Rotten Tomatoes ranking never say never again sixteenth among all Bond films in two thousand hmm. and eight, uh, and Rotten Tomatoes gives it a sixty three percent rating from forty six reviews. I mean that's a very small sample. Uh, anyway, uh, but I you know I, I think initially some of the box office was hey Sean Connery's back playing James Bond. I think probably. The money that they paid to get him to come back, whatever that final dollar amount was, was probably well spent, because if they had gotten an unknown or some other actor to play Bond in their film, I don't think it would have been popularly accepted by the uh, you know, the general viewing public. Uh, whatever they've replaced James Bond, it's you know there's there's always some growing pains to it, even before the internet uh, came into play. Uh You know, I think of. Uh, you know, obviously George Leeson becoming in as bond was was a was an issue to some extent. I don't really remember that. That was before I was into Bond. Right. Uh, I do remember Roger Moore coming in, and uh, I, I think he, he was fairly easily accepted. But I think every Bond since then, there's been a little bit of an outcry as to whether or not it was the right choice.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> Ah, uh, I had reservations with Timothy Dalton. But I feel, looking back on those films now, they weren't as bad as I thought they were at the time. And Pierce Brosnan, I, I didn't have a problem. I, I kind of liked him, to be honest with you.
0: So, yeah, well, no, I, I liked him, but he his style, his acting stuff, I didn't think he was ever given a meaty Bond role to play. Uh... And we'll talk more about him because maybe Dying maybe another day will be moved up and we'll do that one in the not too distant future because I think that's another one that uh, I'm definitely going to put that on the guilty pleasure list. Um, but I, I, I don't know if his style of playing Bond would have fit the more meaty role, but I don't think he ever got a chance to find, to, to see, we, we never got a chance to see that. We never got to see him play Bond the way Daniel Craig did. And if he had tried to play it with the way the movies were written, I don't think it would have gone well.
1: No, there was clearly a big shift in the dynamic of the film series.
0: So we'll need to talk a little bit more about all of that as as we get into some other movies. But for now, we're sticking with Never Say Never Again, and I think it's time for me to say to you, David, is this movie Jaws? And I'll give the Jaws scale. And we already know it's not Jaws, which is an all-time classic, one of the greatest movies of all time. Uh, Very few flaws, if any. Jaws 2, on the other hand, is... A, a very good movie, rewatchable, likable, uh, you know, solid, but not quite to the classic level. Jaw's three, enjoyable, but nothing particularly special, you know, watchable and and entertaining. Uh Jaw's four is just bad. Where does this fall on your scale? And this is you. I'm not asking you what I think you know, don't don't be influenced by me in any way. Where do you place this?
1: I hate say it, I have to make it Jaws 4.
0: Yeah, that's kind of where I thought you'd come.
1: <laughs> I mean, f- for me, it's when I'm sitting there watching the movie, and I'm looking at my watch going, uh, how much longer is this going to be on? Yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, I'm
0: falling I'm on Jaws 3 for for me. Uh, I think some of the criticism is overblown. I think there are sequences in it that are enjoyable. Uh, I think to some extent it's a little slick. I thought the direction was decent. Um, I thought, you know, seeing Sean Connery in the role is always appealing to me, period, end of story. So for those reasons, I, uh, I, I think it's watchable, and it's not something that's on my, hey, I need to, you know, a year has gone by and I haven't seen Never Say Never Again, let me get the DVD out. That's, <laughs> that's not the case. But if it's on and I'm flipping through the channels, I actually would stop on it. So I put it at choice three,
1: and I do feel bad about that, to to be honest, because I really like Sean Connery, and I fe- yeah. I feel like I'm slamming him, but I really just don't like this movie. No, oh,
0: I'm sorry, I made you money to get it. <laughs> I realized that uh, you know I might not have asked you to do this one, <laughs> uh, but anyway. That's it for our Never Say Never Again review. Uh, David will be back. <laughs> <laughs> In Thunderball. Well, I, I don't know if I'm going to do Thunderball <laughs> next, or Die Another Day, or Casino Royale, or any one of the other Bond movies that we haven't covered to date, but I, I think I'm probably going to have you as my Bond correspondent. doesn't mean we can't do a non-Bond film, but if I, I think any Bond film I do, I'm going to at least want to try and have you on board.
1: I would be on it to be on any Bond film
0: or any other film. Yeah. I mean, there, there are some other people who've uh, tried to call dibs on some Bond films. So I may, you know, we may have a three-man booth on one or two. But uh, I'll I'll keep, I'll keep you on the list for any Bond film. And like I said, there's, there's others that I know we want to cover that are non-Bond. So I don't want to, I don't want to pigeonhole you. Excellent. Thanks again for coming on, Dave.
1: Oh, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for having
0: me. And everybody else, thanks for listening, and uh, I could always use some iTunes reviews. And any email, if you have any interest in commenting on anything we say, it's at jawspodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again.